Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Hillary. And this is Probably Not Lupus, where we discuss medical mysteries and entertain you with curious and uncommon case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from real people, history, journals, and fellow doctors. To protect privacy, names, dates, and locations may have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun. So enjoy. Have you ever been out for a run and felt like you might literally be dying? 35-year-old Evan turned this colloquial comment into a reality when he suffered a rare type of stroke during his training for a marathon. Although muscle pain, a racing heart, and maybe even some dizziness are common for many people pushing themselves during a run, they can also be an early indicator of something much more sinister happening in your brain. Listen now as a cognitive neuroscientist self-diagnoses his stroke in real time. Welcome back to this is episode two of the probably not lupus podcast it is episode two we made it we made it um so today we're gonna do something kind of different i guess different to what the first episode is i already did an interview with a very Mm -hmm. interesting case about a stroke and strokes are obviously very common And it was something we wanted to touch on, but because I did the interview alone, I have kind of broken it up and I'm going to just present some of the clips of the interview to Emma. We're going to get Emma's reaction live. This is the first time she's heard of it. She doesn't know much yet. So we're going to get her opinions on it as well. Just to give you a little bit of a background, as I mentioned, we're talking about strokes, which are also known as cerebral vascular accidents. And in Canada, they are actually the third leading cause of adult disability. And there's like 50,000 new strokes a year, um, which is one in every 10 minutes. That's crazy. That's crazy that like throughout this episode, like, I don't know, like four people are going to have a stroke. Yeah. And uh, about 14,000 people die of those strokes a year too. So this is not an insignificant condition. It's very common. Uh, But the outcomes vary wildly based on what kind of stroke you had and where it happened, which is what we're going to get into today. Yeah, I'm excited. (laughs) I was lucky enough to interview a friend of mine who recently had a stroke. So let's talk about Evan, who at age 35 suffered a stroke. And I'm going to let him tell the story in clip one. I'll start by just getting your name and your preferred pronouns, please. Sure. Yeah. Uh, my name is Evan Kulbik. Preferred pronouns, he, him, his. So tell me a little bit about what happened. I was out for a run. At the time, I was training for a half marathon. This is something I, I was, you know, getting back into after years of um, just kind of casually running. And um, doing some really early morning ones. I was living in Montreal at the time. Um, so gradually ramping up over the course of the spring uh, with the aim to, to um, get my half marathon in in May. Uh, and at about the 16 kilometer mark, I uh, just feel this intense, intense pain uh, in the back of my neck on the right side. 
um, well, not it's so intense at first. It started starts like ramping up. So when you first noticed it, like what was your first thought about what was happening? Oh, my first thought was that it was just a just a pain, just like a transient uh, cramp or something, muscle tension that would just work its way out if I just kept running, right? Which is what I did. Um, I kept going and it didn't go away. Um, it got worse and worse. And once it got past the intensity of any pain I've ever experienced in that region, uh, that's when I decided to stop. I, I needed to, like, I'll just start walking now, see how this goes. When I did stop running, um, as soon as I stopped running, um, that's when my vision just totally went. Um, so I, well, I didn't lose my vision, but it became totally dissociated from my vestibular system, I guess. It, everything started spinning um, counterclockwise. Um what is like I have so many questions but like for so he knows the word vestibular system I feel like that is not like common knowledge a very very uh apt analysis so mm -hmm. why does Evan know words like vestibular sy system uh which for our listeners is the part of the brain that controls balance coordination and spatial orientation so kind of like what he was talking about this vision spinning um, and also, why was he able to actually think about what the possible causes for this are? I will let him explain it in clip two. And I started to panic. I didn't know what was going on. So um, at this point, I didn't know it was a stroke. I went through in my mind a few possibilities. Um, and I was hoping, I thought maybe this is a migraine. Um, I'd never had a migraine before. Um, and, and I know that there's a lot of, um, other strange sensory stuff that can happen in a migraine as well. It might be interesting if you tell us why, you know, some of the sensory things that come along with a migraine. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just at the tail end. Um, in fact, just about to submit my dissertation, um, for a PhD in psychology and my, my, um, focus, my specialization has always been in cognitive neuroscience. Um, so I'm in a hormones and behavior lab, but um, but cognitive neuroscience is my wheelhouse. So yes, I, I've got a lot of background in um, brain physiology and anatomy um, and teach a course actually in psychopharmacology. So in real time, you're thinking to yourself, what are the possible things that could be going on neurologically right now? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to diagnose myself in real time. Exactly. And um, and so, like I said, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm guessing... Um, and like I said, also hoping that uh, at the top of this probability list is um, is a migraine because I don't really have to worry too much about a, about a migraine. Yeah, so that's super interesting that he is a cognitive neuroscience. I think neuroscientist. I think that obviously gives him such an upper hand in terms of already thinking. It's like he was already had a differential list in his head, and he was already more aware than the average Joe in terms of um, what's going on. Yeah. And that's such extensive anatomy background and like specifically in neuroanatomy. Yeah. That's super beneficial for him here. Um, interesting that he thought a migraine, I mean, it makes sense. The worst pain. Um, I was also thinking of something like some sort of like cluster headache or something like that. Mm. Um, Primary headaches though, still not like stroke. No, still far away from a CBA for sure. And I think also 
like the sort of weird aura that he had, like not as typical of a migraine, but still really interesting. And I'm still like just so thrown with the population. And I guess it shows like, I mean, we're not, I'm not even done listening to him, but it shows like you really have to have a wide list as a physician and you can't just cross link off your differential because they don't fit the population. Totally. And when I was talking with Evan, it really reminded me of one of the first Ted talks that I ever saw that I thought was great. It was like in 2008, I think. Yeah. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's another neuroanatomy scientist who her name's Jill Bodie Taylor, and she had a stroke and in real time realized she was having a stroke and then thought, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> and then goes That's through her crazy. experience. Yeah. Her Ted talks called a stroke of insight, my stroke of insight. And uh, yeah, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's worth a listen for sure. Um, yeah. So I asked Evan with all of his knowledge, when did you realize that this just wasn't a migraine? Um, and I'm also panicking as well a little bit. So I, I just reach for my phone and it's a little hard to read. If I get it in the center of my visual field where things aren't spinning quite so much, it's a little better. And I start scrolling through my um, through my contacts uh, and dialing them one by one. But it's really early in the morning and no one's awake. <laughs> so um, so it's the fourth person that, um, that I ring, um, which ended up being my mom actually, which is like the worst, the worst person to get on the phone. Like when one of the, uh, when something like this is happening for her, of course, um, obviously for me, I was just happy that anyone picked up and, um, I've got, I've got a bit of a lifeline now, uh, cause I wasn't ready to call an ambulance yet, quite yet. Not, not fully sure, uh, quite what it was, um. Also, I did notice I, as I was doing this, um, I was looking for a tree or, or something stable. I ended up on a tree um, over uh, on my right side. And I noticed I was stumbling a little bit to get there um, and stabilized myself with my right hand on the tree to, um, to start calling people. Um, so again still not quite sure what it was but um as soon as my mom answered i um i started talking and as soon as i say hi mom i can instantly hear that i'm slurring my speech and i'm like oh i'm having a stroke i'm having a stroke um and at this time now i'm just like don't worry um i'm gonna be okay i'm just having a stroke i'll call you right back <laughs> i'll call you right back <laughs> i need to call an ambulance so that's what i did yeah <laughs> don't worry I'll be okay I'm just having a stroke like no big deal hey, don't worry well, mom yeah and I'm I wonder like so he said he was in Montreal at the time is his mom there too or is she here I believe she's here on the west coast where okay we that's are. even yeah. more concerning yeah there yeah um I think it was interesting that it was finally when he slurred his speech that he was like oh shit because that is what you would expect as more of a classic stroke and symptom um so happy you brought that up oh shall we shall we discuss yes because you've kind of brought up an interesting segment idea for future podcasts and uh how recognizing emergent conditions is so important and so i want to introduce this segment called annie are you okay 
And you might know that from popular Michael Jackson song, or maybe you'll know it from the popular CPR dummy if you've ever done CPR training or education, because the Annie doll is commonly used to train first aid attendants. But what you might not know about the Annie doll is that it's actually made from a plaster cast of a girl in 19th century Paris who drowned. And her ID was never discovered. And back then they would like put you on display alongside other bodies of unknown dead for the purpose of identification. So she's on display. And apparently one of the workers at the mortuary was so like transfixed by her that he made this plaster cast of her face. Creepy, extra creepy if you know that she was also only 16 at the time when she died. Yeah. Uh, But other people were apparently transfixed by her too, because this face went on to then inspire art and poems and even later a child's doll, like meant to be a toy for children. Oh, the Annie doll. Named Annie, yes. Oh my gosh, this makes so much sense now. Now, plot twist, get this. It wasn't until the 1960s that her face was used to make the CPR doll for future rescuers and to practice their techniques on. But the reason they chose her image was because they assumed male rescuers would be reluctant to practice CPR on a male doll's lips. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. All for the men, that's all they care about. But wow. So now that we have a little lesson on Annie, uh, let's do this segment, Annie, Are You Okay? And the reason I want to bring it up for a stroke is that there is a popular mnemonic endorsed by the Heart and Stroke Foundation. You might have heard it before. It's FAST. And if you live in BC, you might have also seen it painted on the side of an ambulance. I was going to say it's on ambulances now, isn't it? We can't all be neuroscientists and have a stroke. It just. (laughs) We're not all doctors. We're all nurses. Yeah. He was obviously very lucky here. And that's great for Evan that he was able to get the help he needed. Um, But yeah, so the acronym FAST, F is facial drooping. Oh, keep going. You're doing a great job. Okay. Um, so the A, the A is, a, is arms, really, mm-hmm. really simple. So you got to look at someone and just ask them to raise their arms and Perfect. the inability to raise one or both arms. Totally. Um, the S in fast is speech. So this was Evan's red flag. Like I said, a very token pathognomonic sign for a stroke is um, sudden slurred or jumbled speech. So again, like he said, he noticed it when he tried to speak, wasn't coming out right. And then the T to finish off fast is time, which means it is time to call 911. So you see two, one to three of those symptoms before from the face, the arms or the speech, you gotta call 911. This is an emergency. And I believe that there's certain timeframes in medication and all these things with stroke that timing can be very, very important. Yes, four hours, life-saving. Yeah. And that also brings up a good point that that four hour window, I mean, obviously it applies to anyone having a stroke. If you have either too much blood in your brain or not enough oxygen going to your brain, I don't think you need to have a medical degree to know that that's bad news. And we need to get you to the people who can help you as fast as possible. And what's interesting though, is most strokes are actually in the cerebral hemispheres. And that's why it causes that, like you were saying, one side drooping or the inability to lift one arm because one side of the brain controls the other side of the body. 
Um, but with Evan's knowledge, he started to realize that his stroke was probably not in the cerebral hemispheres. And if you remember, he mentioned his pain started in the back on the right in his neck, actually not a headache. Right. And so it wouldn't be long until he realized that he was having a more rare type of stroke located in the posterior inferior cerebellar artery, also known as a pica stroke. And I will let him describe what he found out next. So I, I then found my way to a park bench. Did the dispatcher note when you called 911 that you were slurring your words as well? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that was quite apparent. Luckily, they, they, I can um, still tell them where I am with enough precision. Luckily, I'm also looking around trying to get, I'm, I'm at a park. I don't know what street I'm on exactly. Um, I was in a new city. This was in Montreal at the time. I'd only been living there for um, three months. And so, yeah, I have to, I have to get my bearings. And by doing that, I'm also um, partially like trying to find out where this stroke is. And so luckily I'm, you know, I already know I, I, I can speak great. Uh, language is intact. Perfect. Can I read? Yes. Okay. I can read um, some, uh, some of the, um, some of the signs. I can read an advertisement in on the park bench. Um, and then, so I'm, I'm sort of bouncing back and forth between um, being on the phone, but also testing out. Uh, you know, I had taken a course in my undergrad on neuropsychology, so I'm going through um, the just a neuropsych checklist, basically, right? I'm just doing basic math in my head, like, can I do basic arithmetic, right? Um, I, I just, like, go through trails A and B in my head, just pretending uh, I'm connecting some random dots that I'm, I'm projecting out. Um, and then just testing some some motor abilities as well, and uh, so so going through what I can remember from from uh, a neurological test. And did you notice anything with like your arms or legs or face? Those sort of like classic stroke signs that we would think of. The slurring of the speech was um, my right face um, had um, was was essentially just yeah a, a little paralyzed, right? Now. Um, but um, I'm left-handed, so I actually don't know where my language is, what hemisphere it, it's in, right? It's probably, I know it's probably still in the left hemisphere, but there's a, quite a good chance that it's either in the right or, or distributed. So the language thing wasn't fully informative. Um, but the specific pain um, that I was having uh, around my neck and, um, and then what was going on in my face uh, and then the fact that testing both right and left hemispheric um, uh, uh, capacities, right, cognitive abilities, I realize, well, this is actually probably not a cerebral stroke at all, actually, right? And so this is, this is lower down. And then I really start worrying because like, holy shit, this is lower down. Yeah, I mean, he's so well informed with the whole neuroanatomy, um, which I mean worked in his favor but also at the end he said like you know it freaked him out a little more so what's interesting about evan's symptoms too is just as suddenly as they came on they began to resolve and i'll let him explain more within the ambulance i was starting to speak a little bit more, co more coherently as well did the paramedics recognize that you were having a stroke as well like did they agree with your assessment um I don't remember. I don't remember any objections. Um, so yeah, I think, I think they probably, um, I, I, yeah, I think they probably agree. Hold hands, drive fast. We're not going to fix this in the ambulance. That's it. Right. Yeah. 
Um, and luckily it was close enough to a hospital. So um, yeah, certainly like within an hour, I was, I was fully speaking uh, um, normally again. What did the ER doctors think about you then? <laughs> so uh, they thought it was, I was lucky um, and they were taking it quite a bit more seriously actually than I was at the time. Like, I don't know if it was the shock or, um, or, or some other uh, personality trait that uh, I, I, that needs a little adjustment, but I was asking them um, in the ER, like, would I still be able to finish my run today? Spoken like a true runner. <laughs> no, sir, you will not be finishing your run today. <laughs> I don't think so. I think you had a one-way ticket to Montreal General Hospital. Thank you. Yeah, so <laughs> luckily he got where he needed to be right quick by the paramedics. Paramedics, thank you. Yes, they followed that FAST acronym and got him there. T right away. Excellent. And treatment in the hospital obviously is going to depend on what kind of, you know, we, we call it a stroke, but a stroke is really a cerebral vascular accident, which can mean really an accident anywhere in the brain. So there's so many different presentations. And as we were chatting about locations, the most common is an ischemic stroke, or it's like a blood clot that blocks blood to the brain. So the brain's not getting enough blood. And because of that blockage, you have symptoms. And the next most common kind of stroke is a hemorrhagic stroke. And that's where like a blood vessel breaks. And so now there's bleeding happening in the brain. And still, be even though there's more blood, there's not enough oxygen because the blood's not where it's supposed to be. Now, somehow Evan actually managed to have both kinds of stroke at the same time. I got a CT scan um, and, and, and uh... I think two MRIs, one MRI that day, and then a follow-up about a month, uh, two weeks to a month later. I think when most people think of a stroke, they think of like an ischemic stroke or a clot causing stroke. Yes. That's not the kind of stroke you had. You had the more rare type. No, I, it is the kind of stroke I had actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it was an ischemic stroke, but it was secondary to a vertebral artery dissection. So that's what actually happened here. Either, um, and they don't know, like we don't know what happened either um a piece of the artery wall broke off and became the um like a colluding object or um it acted as a um, i thought maybe and i didn't get pushback from the neurologist on this maybe it acted as like a pocket that um some some clot could have formed in so you did have a bleed but the bleed led to the ischemic stroke Yes, yes, exactly right. So, um, yeah, so that was in the vertebral artery, and then it, the the um, whatever it was, whatever that um, occluding object was, made its way to to the um, posterior inferior cerebellar artery, and then presumably disappeared within an hour. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, um, um, presumably, like broke up. Uh, at least partially quite quickly, because like I said, within five minutes or so, the, the spinning at least um, totally, uh, totally went away. Uh, an hour before I was fully talking straight again, um, talking normally. And then, um, but yeah, then yeah, like a full month before the pain went away, at least a month. I think his, I think what's so interesting to me is that the whole timeline of this from, you know, the onset of the symptoms, to like the pain and then to the slurring and then to the resolution. 
And also the fact that it was both the ischemic and hemorrhagic together, I feel like that has to be more rare. Right. Um, and also the fact that the clot just, I mean, went away without any sort of like anticoagulants or like blood thinning medication. That was pretty cool. Yeah. And I mean, also so rare. Like, I mean, we spoke at the top of this episode about how common strokes are and how many people get mm-hmm. them and how many people die of them from each year. But those are generally the strokes caused by like hypertension and um, clogged arteries. Exactly. Yeah. And that's not what happened here. You know, this was a dissection that ended up leading to the blockage. So I was dying to ask him, of course, why did this happen? How did this happen? How does a 35 year old otherwise healthy male have a stroke? The doctors did kind of give you a potential cause for this, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, because it's very rare, right? I'm, I was 35 at the time, and uh, it's it's extremely rare for a 35-year-old to have that kind of stroke. So, um, but I had remembered that, um, you know, I had paused in my run just a minute or two prior to that at a, at a stoplight at a crosswalk. Um, and uh, as I would frequently do up until that day, um, cracked my neck. And I used to do it quite violently as well. I used to have a lot of uh, muscle tension in my neck that I felt limited my, um, my range of motion. And the only way I could regain it um, is to repeatedly crack my neck throughout the day. And, and the, the violence with which I would do that um, essentially had been ramping up over the course of the, uh, the previous couple of years. And so, um, so I was essentially just sort of like swinging my neck around uh, to get this crack in um, and it, so that I could like loosen my neck a bit, keep running comfortably. Um, but they think that, that there's a good chance that that caused the dissection, yeah. Uh, self-neck cracking, wow. So, okay. so. So just how rare is it? You know, we've been talking a lot about, oh, strokes are so common, but this stroke is very rare. So Evan and his doctors were able to find two other presumed similar cases. And I'll link to those in the show notes as well, if you're interested. Uh, They're similar stories to Evan's, although one person did not make a full recovery like Evan did. As we mentioned in episode one, Emma and I met while we were at naturopathic medical school. And we actually learned about vertebral artery dissections in our cervical manipulation class and a contraindication or a no-no to doing a neck adjustment are signs of insufficiency of that artery. And I do wonder if you did a vertebral basal artery insufficiency test on Evan, if that had been positive. Um, All right. So let's wrap up with Evan. I have one more clip to show you. And obviously by virtue of him being able to do this interview with me, he has made a full neurological recovery. (laughs) We love to hear it. So happy. Um, But of course, there's always something left for a teaser, perhaps next season, because I definitely had so much more to talk about this with Evan. um, But that's for future podcasts. I was in the hospital for four days. Um, 
in the ER actually the whole time I was promised I'd get a room, but I know it was brutal. <laughs> I was promised I'd get a room, but you're young and all your symptoms went away. So you stayed in the ER. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so over 80 hours of that. And, um, then, uh, I, on, on my insistence, I, uh, I asked if I could, um, you know, do whatever it did, um, I needed to do to, to just like make it go back home. And, um, and so they had a test, which is kind of interesting. Um, they had a, they had a kitchen, uh, and they were, uh, that was just stocked with some staples and, um, they just said, cook a meal and we'll evaluate you. <laughs> and, and, uh, so I had to, you know, reach, reach, uh, cupboards. I had to coordinate, um, uh, the meal. And as long as I could do that effectively, then, um, then I was, uh, I was good. I was clear to go home. So, uh, Wow, yeah, that's it actually was really little, cool. It was pretty neat, actually. Yeah. So, so I. What did you cook? I'm dying to know. Just, just pasta. Just a. Nice. Yeah, pasta with a with some sauce, um, with some like fried veggies in it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so, of course, like I was still limited. I had to, like, I couldn't move my neck. I had to to move my entire body when I wanted to um, reach for something. So there was some awkwardness to it, but at least I could do it, right? And you were mostly limited at that time by pain. Is that right? Yeah, still? that's, that's okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's unclear. Like I, it was just so painful to move, to turn my head that, um, that I just didn't attempt it. So, uh, so it was unclear whether I had the ability or not, or if it was just pain. Um, so yeah. Um, then I was allowed to go home. I came back for another scan, uh, two weeks later and then three months later. Okay, I have like three initial thoughts about this. The first one, 80 hours in the ER. Ooh. If he was at Montreal General, I've done that at Montreal General. Mine was only 16, but it was awful. So, oh, your elbow just, surgery. When I broke my humerus, yeah. They kept me in the ER in a hallway. So, I feel your pain, Evan, 100% can side with you on that. That's awful. Um, the second thing is from Pika Stroke to Iron Chef. Like, <laughs> this. you know, I had to ask him what he cooked. <laughs> well, obviously, I had a feeling it was going to be pasta because that's probably what I would make too. We love carbs. But that is like a 180 from stroke to like picking out ingredients and whipping up a meal in the span of like three, four days. Like, wow. And like, thirdly, yeah, is that a good evaluation of our stroke recovery and whether you can discharge someone? I'm not too sure about that. I just find it interesting that he had to make a meal to be able to leave. And that was his ticket out. So I think I already mentioned this, but one last thing to mention, although Evan made a full physical recovery, obviously he did this interview with us. We did also discuss his like mental emotional recovery after this. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, this was really a near death experience. Quite traumatic. I know that we were like going to try and keep these episodes like 25, 35 minutes. And I can already tell that that's not going to happen. But to get into the mental emotional side of things, I think we need to do a whole other episode. And so I think we should stay tuned for a season in the future when we revisit Evan and catch up with him in his recovery. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Music or Spotify and find us on Instagram or YouTube at probably not lupus. 
Probably Not Lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone in our bedrooms.